I'm here today with Johnny Rashid, author of a new book titled Jesus Takes a Side, Embracing the Political Demands of the Gospel, just out from Herald Press. Johnny has served as pastor for Circle of Hope, an Anabaptist cell church, for over 10 years. He's father to Elaine and Agatha and married to Kristen. He lives on Lenape land, colonizes Philadelphia in the northern part of the city. He moved to Philadelphia from Lebanon, Pennsylvania, where his parents emigrated from Egypt. He's an abolitionist and a housing activist. He's an avid home cook and a perpetually disappointed Philadelphia sports fan. He spends too much time on Twitter and hosts Circle of Hope's Resist and Restore podcast. He studied journalism, education, and history at Temple University and completed his MDiv at Palmer Theological Seminary. You can learn more about him at johnnyrashid.com and find him on Instagram at foodpastor. So, Johnny, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, congratulations on all of your work. Thanks a lot, Brian. It's good to be here. Yeah, so really good to um, establish a relationship with you. So, um, before we get into books, uh, can you tell us a little bit about more about your background than what I briefly touched on? Well, I, uh, I came to Philadelphia in, when I was 18 years old. My parents had immigrated in the early 80s to the United States, and I grew up in central PA. And one of the interesting things about their experience in the U.S. that helped shape mine was they came as Christians from a Muslim-majority country, and their um, identity as a religious minority informs their politics. And my book is a lot about how our politics gets formed by our lived experience. And so they came to the U.S. as a former religious minority, and they joined the Christian majority in the United States. And that shaped how their politics worked, both in terms of allegiance to, I think, what would be considered popular Christian politics, as well as resistance to Islam. And so my parents, actually, my dad in particular, was very conservative in his politics, but I grew up in the United States where I was an ethnic minority and a racial minority. And notably, and I mention this because it's right around the time that I moved to Philadelphia. Um, after 9-11, when the towers fell, there was a lot of anti-Arab hysteria in the U.S. And that informed how I experienced the world and how I was shaped politically. Um, I was raised to be a Christian, but I had a lot of questions about what Jesus thought about war what Jesus thought about uh, what, what I think was racism that Arabs experienced in the U.S., and it felt a lot different than what I understood growing up. And so I was able to find, when I came to Philadelphia to study at Temple, a church called Circle of Hope um, that helped inform how I could express my faith in a way that was consistent with my values, how I could follow Jesus in an anti-racist, anti-oppressive, peacemaking kind of way. And so I learned that I could follow Jesus and still hold on to what felt true about my political and ethical commitments um, and convictions. So that's, that's how I um, ultimately became a pastor for Circle of Hope was through this process. And my lived experience as an Arab, especially during the global war on terror and during 9-11 really did influence me. So you kind of first joined the church, it sounds like, as a student member, and then went back to school, get an MDiv, and became a pastor there. Yeah, that's right. So I, I came as a member. I was just a part of the congregation, and I was called into an apprentice pastor process mm -hmm. that ultimately resulted in me planting a church in North Philly. So uh -huh. I was brought up through the church, and then I went to seminary and got trained, and then here I am now. 
Well, very cool. That's really a great uh, journey. So, um, you know, I mentioned the title of your book is Jesus Takes a Side, Embracing the Political Demands of the Gospel. What inspired you to write that book? In January of 2017, it was during a love feast that we had. Um, love feast is when we participate in communion and welcome in new members. Um, it was right after what was called the Muslim ban was passed by the Trump administration. Now, Trump had promised he would do this. So, so though we were, we were still shocked, even though we were not surprised, right? And there was Arab immigrants stuck on the other side of the gates at various airports in the whole country. And I was charged with leading communion um, during that love feast. But I was feeling so distressed within my body. I was very uh, disturbed that this was happening, that people that looked like me and that looked like my kids were being oppressed in this systematic way. And at that point, I thought, I'm going to go offer communion to these gathered people, but I really need Jesus to save me. I really need Jesus to show up in a radical way and change how we think about the world, right? I needed Jesus to be on my side. Um, I couldn't live in an environment where people thought it was okay to keep people that looked like me from immigrating from their self-determination. And then also I couldn't be in that environment because it, it uh, really just contradicted my own existence. And so I thought at first, yeah, this is something we really need to take a stand against, right? And then in the, next, in, the, in, in the next year, we had Charlottesville, and we saw a blatant example of white supremacy. And then Trump saying that there are fine people on both sides. And we saw this time and again that in our political economy, we have such little nerve to take a stand with the oppressed that even when there's abject hatred and white supremacy on the other side, we have, a, we have a hard time taking a stand. And so I wanted to write about the political commitments of the gospel. My goal wasn't to write a book that convinced people who consume Tucker Carlson every night or listen to Sean Hannity on the radio to change their mind. You know, there are a lot of very politically oriented Christians in the country. And if that's you, I understand it. Like, I'm not trying to change your mind. What I'm trying to do is help people who are convicted by the evil around us and want to do something and be anti-oppressive to then not be ashamed of making political commitments. I think that that is hard for a lot of Christians, especially those who have come from the far, far right political segment. They're shy about their political commitments because they've seen how destructive far right and hateful political commitments can be. My call is, is to actually embrace political commitments, but for the sake of the oppressed. Well, you know, I've experienced the same thing. You know, it's hard to get people, a lot of people, to talk about politics. Um, right. Uh, why do you think that that is? Well, I think we've been told from the very start, you know, don't talk about money, don't talk about sex, don't talk about politics and polite company. You're supposed to keep it out of the, the dinner conversation out of polite company, because when we start doing that, people get uncomfortable. It's not something you're supposed to bring up. Um, and so I think people are uncomfortable with it. I don't think people know how to talk about it. 
Um, for me, my body and my lived experience compels me to talk about it. I have to talk about it because if you want to get to know me, you have to get to know my politics because it isn't abstracted from me. It's not something that's removed from me. This isn't a, 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 a discussion that doesn't have any bearing on who I am. This actually is about my dignity. And so when we see political differences as merely abstract, as things that, that, that shouldn't get in the way of our relationships, we miss the point that sometimes hateful politics on its own gets in the way of our relationships, not the discussion of it. Not the actual, not, not the dialogue about it, but rather the politics itself. That what actually is not uniting us isn't that we are politically polarized, but forces like racism and white supremacy and homophobia and ableism and sexism and misogyny. These are the things that divide us, not the fact that we have a political discourse. But it does tend to get escalating quickly, you know, has been my experience. And, uh, you know, totally. my lived experience is that I grew up in corporate America, and basically were the three things you were never supposed to talk about at work, politics, religion, and sex, you know, just as you said. So, you know, I, I think our culture has grown up in a way that we don't know how to talk well about those things. And, um, you know, the, I've just seen so many experiences where, you know, the political thing just escalates quickly, you know, totally. um, which, you know, is, is not a good thing. And, um Anyway, no, no, I won't go any further down that, that uh, tangent for the moment. But, um, you know, in, in your book, I, I love the title of your book, of course. You know, Jesus Takes a Side, which is the same thing, you know, I've been thinking myself. And mm -hmm. in the book, one of the lines in your book is you say, what does a moderate third way, you know, type of an approach mean in the 18th century fight to abolish slavery? Um, you know, I... I Agree. You give some other examples too, right? You know, and it's totally. kind of like, you know, what does it take for us to try to get off the fence? Absolutely. Try to, try to quit straddling the fence, you know, and pretend that both sides have equal validity or equal, um, you know, justification to express their ideas when one of the sides is so completely oppressive and racist and bigoted. Right, exactly, exactly. And so, you know, your book sounds like it's trying to talk to those people who are straddling the fence, basically. Yeah, I mean, I think exactly. When you're talking about abolition, there is no third way. You know, you either want to free slaves or you don't. Let's not try to find a way where people are <laughs> half enslaved, right? And actually, in the United States, if you look at our incarceration system, you can kind of see the lack of, uh, you can see slavery in a new form. And so, like, the third way often isn't a way if you're not siding with the oppressed, you know. To, to, to make a comment about the third way, I don't get into this in my book, but the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King's nonviolent resistance was often seen as a third way. He wasn't taking up arms. He was resisting in a nonviolent way. That's a third way of acting. But Martin Luther King warned us against the white moderate as the greatest obstacle um, against anti-racism, against a new way of thinking and a new way of being. And so Martin Luther King was not interested in moderation. His nonviolence made him the third way. But these days, we would take Martin Luther King's political rhetoric and religious rhetoric and not name it as a third way, but rather name it as one of the poles. 
Absolutely. And so, so we've lost even the nuance, the, the, the meaning of what this term means. And I, I would say we just discard it because it, it makes us seem like we're supposed to be moderates. Mm-hmm. So one of the problems that I see within churches, many churches at least, is that pastors you know, are usually funded by their own congregations, which may be divided. Totally. Which then makes it difficult for them to drive change without losing half their church. What suggestions do you have for folks in those kinds of situations? Well, this is this. I, I understand. I understand the dilemma because even in Circle of Hope, Brian, which is a fairly progressive group, we did anti-racism work over the last two years to try to root out white supremacy from our church. <clears throat> now, the pandemic was also raging at the time too, so we lost people because of the pandemic, but we also lost people because of anti-racist work. Um, even in a progressive de- de- um, congregation, even if you, if you polled our people, and I don't, I've, I haven't done this in any scientific way, the vast majority would be blue, if you will. They still had division. And so it's not just purple congregations that feel the challenges of doing this. Every congregation, because of, our, because of how these forces of death, white supremacy and ableism and homophobia and patriarchy, because of how they almost transcend our politics, we're all going to be challenged. And so I would encourage pastors to continue to help their congregations be faithful followers of Jesus. Um, Everyone is invited to the table. Everyone has an opportunity to transform, right? Um, It's interesting. In in Luke 18, the the beginning passage talks about a self-righteous Pharisee and a tax collector. Tax collector is repentant and wants to change in the Pharisee and, and their hypocrisy, not because of their uh, ritual purity, but rather because of their hypocrisy. Thanks, thanks God that they are so obedient. And Jesus praises the tax collector who was repentant. That's, that's the person who is extolled because of their repentance. Everyone, and tax collectors are hated. They're offered scorn. But they have an opportunity to change. They can repent. And we all can be like that tax collector. We all can repent of the ways that we've been complicit in harmful systems. How do we know that? Because in the end of Luke 18, the rich young ruler is given a chance to follow. Sell your possessions and give them to the poor. And then you can follow me. Then you can begin the journey of following me. Not then you will inherit eternal life. (laughs) Then you can follow me. And then the rich young ruler leaves and he's discouraged. And the disciples say, Jesus says it's easier for a camel to enter an eye of a needle than for a rich man, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So then how will anyone be saved? Well, what's impossible with mortals is possible with God, is what Jesus says. And Peter says, we've let everything go. We've dropped everything to follow you. And he tells them, yes, and you've been faithful. So there is a path for that faithfulness. And then in in Luke 19, Zacchaeus shows us the path. Here's another tax collector who's defrauded a lot of people. What does he do? He pays reparations. He gives away his money. He makes things right. And so to pastors in purple congregations, I understand the dilemma and I felt it. I felt it even in my, my blue church, if you will. But we have to be faithful to the gospel and be courageous about it. We can expect to lose people, but we can also win their souls as well. And we have to also wonder when we are not preaching against oppression, who are we excluding? Who isn't safe in our buildings and in our rooms and in our worship meetings because we aren't doing this? 
So let's decenter the powerful as the main people we're talking to and, and let the little ones come to us. Let the least of these come to us. That's the whole gospel. Jesus is not afraid to offend the powerful. And he gets most angry when the powerful injure the little ones. That is where his, his wrath is. That is where his anger is. So I understand the dilemma. I don't think you need to preach in an aggressive way, but I do think that we need to have plans and strategies for how to help people along. And then be ready to say difficult things that might offend somebody. So, I mean, you know, for years now, Christian congregations and denominations have been declining in numbers. Do you think part of that is because of a perceived hypocrisy that they're not really preaching what Jesus said? Well, millennials are leaving congregations because of homophobia and because, because of hypocrisy and because of judgmentalism. You're judging my lifestyle, you're homophobic, and you're hypocritical. Jesus says the main problem with the Pharisees isn't their commitment to the law, but the fact that they're, they appear clean on the outside, but they're dirty on the inside, right? Jesus wants us to be whole. So if all we want to do is be clean on the outside, which, by the way, there is a lot of vanity in not making political commitments because it's impolite to talk about politics. So there's that vanity again. Yes, I do think that there's a decline because Christians are hypocritical, because um, they don't practice what they preach. And I think people largely feel that personally. They feel that personally, like they'll personally be judged. I don't want to extend it too far and say, if your church is making political commitments, it's going to grow. It may not. It may stay small. It may. There, there's a lot of, uh, but don't allow that to inform how you follow Jesus. You know, I think it's church growth is good. I think evangelism is good, but it can't be the only metric of our faithfulness. Because there are a lot of churches that are growing because of their commitment to white nationalism. So don't sell your soul for a bag of gold. What good is it to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? Um, but I do think that there are people that are eager to join justice movements and anti-oppression movements that would serve with us if given a chance to. Amen. Amen. So I'd like to read a couple of the uh, endorsements. from yeah. the, this, this one is from Drew Strait. He says, this is a must-read for ministering to this moment. So would you say the book is primarily aimed at pastors? I think that pastors would benefit from it for sure, um, especially those that are convicted but have a hard time. I think Trump really messed us up. I think, like, if you look at Barack Obama and Mitt Romney in, in a fairly mundane election in 2012, right, you had uh, – Mitt Romney had, like, Romney care in Massachusetts, and then Obama made that Obamacare for the whole country, <laughs> and that's where the political dispute is. These people are pretty similar. You know, they're both moderates. One's to the right, one's to the left, one's to the center, you might say. And, yeah, that's, the, the, there, there is no redemptive option here. You pick, the, you pick the, the lesser of two evils. It was nice that we had a black president that we could vote for and give dignity and honor to black Americans and to, to be able to see this person up front. So I think that was good. But you could see why someone wouldn't want to make a very strong political commitment, especially if they're committed to the radical politics of Jesus, right? But Trump really did mess us up because the vehement evil, the heinous acts, his words, his rhetoric, you know, that caused hate crimes, right? If you hosted a rally 
for Trump in 2016, you saw a 200 per, the counties that did that <coughs> saw a 200 percent increase of hate crimes. So, like, we're seeing the evil right in front of us. And so pastors who were used to not being political because the difference between Mitt Romney and Barack Obama wasn't material were now faced with a call to political commitments because of how evil it was. And I think that messes us up. I think that's hard. I think that's surprising. You know, there is no decorum. There is just hatred. There is uh, um, vitriol being spewed around people, right? When Trump says, uh, when he describes countries that people come from as shitholes, right? When he tells immigrant representatives of Congress to go back to where they came from, right? This radical rhetoric changed how we approached politics. And I think a lot of pastors are caught off guard. So I do think it's for pastors, but I also think it's for lay people. It's for parishioners that feel the same tension, that want to minister the gospel, because we're all ministers of the gospel as Christians, right? And especially as an Anabaptist, we're all the priesthood of all believers, really, um, in its truest form. So I think it is also for people who feel confused and want to make political commitments, but feel like the whole world has been shaken around how they used to do that, and they want to find a new way to do it. So here's another uh, excerpt or another endorsement uh, from Kurt Willems. In Jesus Takes a Side, Johnny Rashid skillfully invites Christians to follow the Jesus who took the side of the marginalized every time. Do you think that modern Christians, generally speaking, have lost sight of that? Yes, I do. I think that I, I, I hear it all the time. Jesus finds a creative solution. Jesus doesn't take a side. Jesus isn't divisive. You know, David Fitz just wrote a book about not taking a side explicitly. I forget what the title is, how taking a side sidelines the church or something like that, something like that. Um, and that is really in the rhetoric. Like it is very popular to not be divisive in a polarizing time. So I do think Christians absolutely have a hesitation in doing that. Um, but I think that we need to look at polarization and wonder what's polarizing us. Is it strong political commitments on either side or is it the po politics of our body that people's lives are on the line? You know, what polarizes us isn't like dialogue about taxes and revenue streams and, and, and licenses and all sorts of like minor political issues. They're big issues, right? Critical race theory polarizes us. Um, LGBT inclusion polarizes us, right? Don't say gay. Don't teach critical race theory. These type of things that are about people's bodies, that's what polarizes us, you know? Um, so I do, think, I do think Christians have a hard time doing that. So if there was one thing you'd want uh, folks to take away from your book, what would it be? That it's okay to make political commitments. The gospel shows us that it's possible um, to do so, that Jesus teaches us to lead with nerve, that even... That even the Apostle Paul does the same, you know. Paul describes a body being united by elevating voices that are dishonored. So let's look to the voices that are dishonored in our bodies and then lift them up and then act in political ways that help them make commitments. Acting both pr pr practically, it's election day here in Pennsylvania today. Um, so, yeah, participate locally, participate as much as you can in advancing justice in practical ways. But then also don't limit your political action to what's possible within this economy. In fact, use the gospel to have a, a prophetic imagination about things that we haven't even imagined. What does it look like to keep our community safe without police brutality? 
What does it look like to share our money in common outside of neoliberalism? What does it look like to be nonviolent and to not use violence as governance? What does it look like to change how we think? How can we bring the Christian prophetic imagination to informing our practical politics? How can we hold on to both? That's what, that's the hope. That's what we got to strive for. Absolutely. So um, I know you're right in the middle of launching a new book, but uh, is there anything you can talk about in terms of future plans, whether it's future books or other future projects? Um, well, I'd lo- I'm, I'm currently thinking about writing a new book about uh, power and p- abuse of power, especially in, I'm, we're in Anabaptist context here, so in Anabaptist churches and, 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 and talking about my journey about how abusive environments has made it hard for me to even express myself as an individual. So that's one thing I'm working on. Um, out of Earth and Altar this month, there's going to be an article coming out that I wrote about Matthew 18, 15 through 20, and how it's been used to hurt minorities. And, and one way that we can change this, this tool that Jesus has given us to forgive one another, to actually liberate us, as opposed to quieting down people who are accusing us of harm. So those are two things I'm doing. You can follow me on Twitter as well, at Johnny Rashid, um, to keep up also with what I'm doing. You know, And we're also in Philadelphia, so if you're in the area, come by one of our... Uh, we have four congregations in Philly and South Jersey, South Philly, Germantown, and Fishtown. Come to one of those locations. We'd love to have you. Very cool. Very cool. So as I mentioned, the title of the book is Jesus Takes a Side, Embracing the Political Demands of the Gospel. And uh, you can learn more at johnnyrashid.com and uh, on, on Twitter and Instagram, uh, as uh, Johnny had mentioned earlier. So thanks so much, John. I really appreciate your work. Thanks, and, Brian. Thanks for joining us. To, this to, is great. To share with everyone.